I could have your attention. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Jones Shorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. And I welcome you all to this special uh, conversation. Uh, we are very glad to have with us today Britt Hume, who is a distinguished journalist of over 35 years of journalistic, I guess, experience, roughly about now. No kidding. <laughs> Get at it. Fox News does the bio, they only count the TV part. And he has uh, he has first made a success uh, at ABC News with his colleague and friend Charlie Gibson, who was a Shorenstein fellow this semester, uh, and then went to Fox News. And we're going to be talking, uh, he and I, at first, uh, about a range of things just in a conversation for a little while, and then we will open it up to your questioning and uh, conversation with him yourself. Um, first of all, welcome. Glad to have you. Honored to be here. Um, I remember vividly in 1996 when it was announced that Fox News was going to be created and that it was taking one of the true, genuine bragging rights ornaments of ABC News, you. Uh, as part of its uh, as part of its news team to create this new uh, news network. Uh, bear in mind, Britt Hume had been voted, uh, you know, best in the business by the American Journalism Review. He had covered the White House and Congress and many other things for ABC News. Had been at ABC News for 23 years at that point. And so, I guess what I want to ask you is, why did you decide to do this? What was your thinking then about? what this was going to be and where you wanted to go and why you would, I mean, you were a star at ABC and why you would give that up to go to what was then anyway, an experiment in a fledgling enterprise. Yeah, at the time I remember referring to it as like leaving the Yankees who were then the world champions to go to an expansion team. Um, but it actually was the easiest decision I ever made uh, for several reasons. One was that uh, I was a Washington guy. I didn't really want to live anywhere else. I didn't want to live in New York. Um, and I'm not saying that ABC News had any great opportunity waiting for me in New York. I'm just saying that when you look around after you come out of the White House for opportunities in Washington, there are not that many of them. Uh, ABC had announced prior to the end of that year, which is when my contract expired in the end of 96, that it was going to start a cable news channel. People get this. Time. It, was, it, it was actually announced before Microsoft and NBC announced that there was going to be something done together, which has turned out to be MSNBC. And it was before Fox had uh, entered the fray in any way. And I was excited about that because I thought, well, here's an opportunity for a guy who's getting old and is coming out of the White House uh, where I could perhaps do something that I wanted to do, which was some kind of analytical commentaries, and I thought it might be a great window and a great opportunity to, to be in Washington. And a lot of my decision um, about where I wanted to work revolves, or can be illustrated by what happened then. Um, Rune Arledge, who was the great impresario of ABC News and one of the most talented men our business has ever seen, made this announcement. And, and I even helped them with some ideas that they were talking about. And what eventually happened was that they got down to looking at the numbers as they imagined they would be, and projecting the amount of losses that they would have to take before an ABC News cable, a news channel would be able to uh, begin to turn a profit. And they calculated what a, how much of a hit it would, it would mean for the stock price and all that. And the, basically the Disney, parent company Disney uh, bean counters nixed the deal. And ABC News Today is without a cable news outlet, which is, I think, was a terrible miscalculation on their part, a very bad mistake, but anyway, that's what happened. In the meantime, along comes Rupert Murdoch. Now, I knew Rupert Mur Murdoch a little bit, and I'm not going to go into detail about how I got to know him slightly, but I, I, what I found him to be was a remarkably <coughs> approachable, interesting, um, man who did not appear to me to be the antichrist that a lot of the people in the news business seem to think he was. And I think some of them probably think that even more today than they did then. Um, but I thought he was a, a very interesting guy and I liked him to the slight extent I knew him. 
Now here's the difference. Here's a company, ABC News, a unit within Disney, which is number one in the all-important uh, measure of your news division success, the evening news ratings. And it had been for some years. It had bureaus all over the world. It had a staff of correspondents, some of them of some renown. It had all of the underpinnings of a successful cable channel in addition to its broadcast operations. And of course it had facilities. What did Fox have? The subsidiary of Rupert Murdoch's News Corporation. Basically it had no studios to use for a cable news channel. It had no correspondence to speak of. It had a few in Washington. That was it. it had no bureaus. It had practically nothing. It did have a chain of stations. The overwhelming majority of, of, of which did not do news. Now that was soon to change. There's some, there were some major stations that, that he'd acquired um, to be part of the Fox network when he bought out the New World uh, uh, company from uh, Ron Perlman. It was Ron Perlman owned it. And so he had some major market stations that could have provided some support to a cable channel. But that was it, and the, and the, and the, but the network was strung together from a lot of penny ante stations all over the country, most of which are doing news. So the risk for him was financial, financial terms, was immensely greater than that which Disney would have faced if it tried to start a cable channel. But the name of the company turned out to matter. News Corporation is a news company with entertainment properties. The Disney company, and it's a wonderful company, and I have no complaints about it, is an entertainment company with news properties. And when it got down for me to decide, you know, where to spend the waning days of my career as I you know, began to age, and where there might be a future for somebody like me, I thought it was a pretty simple choice just in terms of the overall corporate entity. And I will tell you that when I was there at Fox working full-time as Washington Managing Editor or whatever, there would be an occasional day when out of the blue I'd look up and Rupert Murdoch would be standing in the door. And he didn't want to come in to ask me about it. He would just drop in. And he'd sit down on the couch as if he were, you know, one of the correspondents and shoot the breeze about the news. So I don't think Michael Eisner probably ever did that very much. Charlie, did that ever happen to you? <laughs> um, we talked so, about Mickey Mouse. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the other thing was that um, but I knew they were going to start this thing, and I thought I was interested. And then he hired Roger Ailes. Now, I knew Roger Ailes from politics, and I knew two things about him. One was that he shot straight. Whenever I dealt with him covering a campaign and Ailes was involved in it, you could, you could believe what he said. He was very blunt about it, colorfully so sometimes. Um, but he shot straight. And the other thing I knew was that no one should ever underestimate Roger Ailes. With Roger Ailes, failure is not an option. Not ever. And to give you an example, he was uh, engaged to do a campaign for a man named Mitch McConnell years ago. Mitch McConnell was a, was a congressional aide, and he was running against a guy named Walter Huddleston, who was the incumbent Democratic senator from Kentucky, and a man who was in, was in no re-election trouble. And McConnell was somebody nobody had ever heard of. <coughs> Kentucky in those days was not inhospitable to Republicans, but it was generally a blue state. And McConnell hires Ailes to do media for his campaign, and he says, well, what should we do? Well, just weeks to go, or a couple of months to go, there were four, he was like 40 points down. And Roger L. says, you got two choices. You can run a respectable race, campaign on the issues, give a good account of yourself, and set you up to run for the next time. You're not going to win. Or you can try to win this. It won't be easy. It'll take a lot of money. We'll have to mount a major media effort. Uh, but if you can raise the money, I'll do your media for you. If you but you're going to have to raise the money. Well, McConnell said he'd raise the money, and he did. And else did the media. They found that Huddleston, like nearly every other United States senator, had had um, missed some votes. So the campaign was about the whereabouts of the missing senator. And the stars of the ad campaign were some bloodhounds that Hales and his crew <laughs> found and got and used 
and the campaign was all about the search for this missing senator, missing in action. <laughs> it was unfair, but by contemporary campaign standards, it was no more unfair than anything else. It was hilariously funny. If you ever seen the ads, <laughs> you, you'll, you don't laugh, you scream. And the concluding ad was shot one day on Capitol Hill when Ailes and Company rolled up there with a van. The crew jumps out. You're not allowed to do this. The crew jumps out. The guy's got the camera mounted on his shoulder. They they got the bloodhounds out, and the guy goes racing across the back lawn of the Capitol with the camera crew following him. And they eventually get to the base of a tree and stop there. And then later on, they shot the picture of the actor up in the tree pretending to be Senator Huddleston. <laughs> <laughs> McConnell got elected. Um, Roger Ellis is the guy who works <coughs> and I thought Rupert Murdoch, Roger Ellis, I hope I hear from them. I did, and w and they offered me. They said, we, you know, he said, look, you can have the Sunday show if you want it. He was that had already started. He said, I'd like to, uh, the title. I'd like for you, so you won't have to run the place. I said, I don't have any management experience. I can't run anything. He said, he's managing editor, and he said. Use you in whatever other capacities you might like. I said I'd rather be on the, I'd like to be on the panel on the Sunday show. I don't want to be the Sunday show host. And so I got, I was the offer he made. He made a significantly generous offer financially. But I believe that the combination of Murdoch and Ailes were going to succeed. The other thing, and this is as important as anything else, I had long believed that there was a tilt in the coverage of news. I'm not talking about the opinions. Just dispensed by various commentators. I'm talking about the day-to-day -day diet of stories covered and the angles from which those stories were pursued that was to the left. And I often saw alternative angles, equally if not more legitimate journalistically, from which the same, same stories could be pursued. I also saw stories that I thought were very, very interesting that didn't get much play in the place where I worked. Now, when I would raise at ABC News, when they would say to me, for example, when I was White House correspondent, I remember they came to me one time and they said, you know, you, we need to do a really searching series about President Bush. This is the first President Bush. He said, you know, he's not really not doing anything. He doesn't really have much of a program. And I said, yeah, so? They said, well, I mean, we need to do that. He's not doing it. I said, does it occur to you that that's because he's a Republican? I mean, did he run on a big domestic program? Well, I hadn't thought of that. I said, no, he's, he's not doing anything because he doesn't believe, he's like a lot of Republicans, he doesn't believe that an active federal government with a lot of new government programs is the way to govern. And they eventually agreed to that, and we kind of did a series about what he wasn't doing and how that was in fulfillment <laughs> of his campaign promises, and they were fine with it. <laughs> you know? um, but, and I would find day by day that I would sometimes see a different angle of the way the story would be covered. When I raised it, people at ABC News were good people. They would say, well, yeah, that's, that makes sense, too. Yeah, let's do that. So we do that. But we started from scratch every time. And I always thought, you know, if somebody ever started a, a, a news network with an alternative perspective, and I'm talking about an alternative perspective in terms of an expression of editorial opinion. There's plenty of that around, and God knows at Fox we've got plenty of it. I'm talking about in the stories that we did that everybody else is doing, there are alternative ways of doing them, and there were stories around that others weren't doing that I thought were good stuff. Well, this is what Roger Ailes was talking about, and I thought this is this is what I've been hoping would happen all these years. I might have an opportunity to work at a place like this, so it was easy. That was a long-winded no, answer. No, no, that was exactly what I would hope that you would say. I mean, you know, it would give us a nuanced sense. Okay, you had an idea of what Fox News was going to be. Has Fox News turned out to be what you had thought? Very much so. Um, the, the thing you have to understand about Fox News is that there are basically two parts to Fox News. There's the news side, and then there's the opinion side. What, what's called within the and, and they within the hierarchy of Fox News, everybody ultimately reports to Roger Ailes. But there is a vice president of news, news gathering, who has charge of the hard news programming that we do, um, which, and then there's a there's a vice president of what's called programming, and that person is in charge of programs like Hannity and Beck and O'Reilly and the morning show, the six to nine morning show. Um, and there is within the within the framework of Fox News, when you're working, you're aware of these the distinction between that and these shows that are operated by these quite opinionated hosts. 
um, a number of whom are conservative, some of whom are liberal. Uh, Greta Van Susteren, although her attitudes may have changed, but she's one, you know, one of the liberals. Geraldo Rivera has a show on the weekend. He's certainly one of them. Uh, and the number, of, the list of liberal contributors at Fox is nearly as long as the list of conservative contributors. But the point being that there is a real clear line within the company. I think that line is less visible to the public, and if I were king, I would draw that line and make that line brighter, but, but there it is. And, but in terms of <coughs> the hard news programming that we do, which composes much of the content of what we call the day parts, those are the programs that start at 9 o'clock in the morning and go in two-hour blocks through about, uh, till about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, um, much of that is the same fare you would expect to find on any news channel, correspondent reports, interviews, if there's a controversy, there's usually somebody from the one side and somebody from the other, and it's pretty straightforward stuff, and that's how it goes. Which is not to say, however, that when we see a story we think is being undercovered, uh, or not covered at all, or covered in a peculiar way. We were very early, for example, <coughs> to smell a rat in the famous Duke lacrosse prosecutions. Um, that was really where Megyn Kelly, who's this kind of dazzling anchor star, rising star at Fox News, um, made a name for herself with a lot of people because she thought the thing looked funny. She's a lawyer. And she was, even from Washington, where she was uh, in, a, in the Bureau at the time, she got on that story early and was raising questions about it and um, pointing out things about the case that others were not. Now, everybody caught on eventually that the thing was, was rotten, but um, she was early on that. Um, and there are a number of other examples I could cite where we kind of get on a story that others are doing and handle it in a different way. Not everybody ends up doing it as, you know, eventually the way we do it, but that happens too sometimes. Fox, I'm, uh, this is a question I don't know the answer to. Does Fox News, for people like you, prohibit financial contributions to candidates? It does for people. Well, I consider myself to be a part of the hard news side of Fox, even though I do commentaries. <laughs> Entitled when I choose to express an opinion, I still feel like I work for the news side, and uh, we do not permit news anchors, correspondents, or other hard news employees to make political. How, how do you come down on that question? For, I think not, it's I don't, the, I don't it's mean, the right I, policy. I don't mean for you. I mean for people like you know Olbermann and. Hannah well, I think I think that I th look. I, I think that in the Olbermann case, it was unfair. Keith Olbermann is unmistakably an opinion dispenser. Nobody who watches this program would think otherwise. In fact, if you're talking about, you know, if you're talking about contributions in kind, you could make an argument that what he does on his program every night is worth far more to the Democratic Party or the liberal cause than the pittance uh, campaign contributions. Now, I, look, if I were if I were running everything in every news division, I'd keep all the people who are associated with news programming of any kind out of that business. But I think it's a practical matter that if you're keeping your hard news people, the people who have to cover stories and try to present a neutral perspective, uh, that, that's particularly important that they stay out of that, that world. Rachel Maddow was here relatively recently, and uh, she was asked about what she does and how she feels about what she does. Um, she said that there's no question that when she starts you know, railing against Fox News and Fox News's coverage, her numbers go up. And I gather that probably works the other way around as well. Charlie has been here working hard on trying to get at how Congress might work more effectively in a kind of a, a collaborative way. And I think it is certainly the broadly judged vision that the not the cable news opera, not NBC News necessarily, or Fox News necessarily, but the voices, the dominant voices, the Maddow and Oberman, the Hannity and O'Reilly and, and Beck, that they have been voices that have done damage to this country by making it so extremely polarized. And I wonder how you, I mean, looking at it as a dispassionate way, if you can, how you feel about sort of that larger issue of our sort of commonweal in terms of not just Fox, I mean just in terms of the of the sort of that prime time cable news world that has been created. Well, I don't 
Only subscribe to the view that a vigorous and even angry debate over political issues is damaging to our country. I just don't believe that. Um, and I don't think that it, you know, that, that there's nothing that, you know, that, I mean, people have passionate political views. And, uh, or they have political views they feel passionate about. And the fact that that's reflected on the air in some of the programming that's on cable news is not altogether surprising given the number of hours that are available now for, for post news coverage and talk about the news. It's reflected on radio as well, and I don't think it harms the country. You think, for example, that in the early years of this republic we had a press that was almost entirely a partisan press, and you see it vestiges of that in the names of some publications around the country still that have the name of one political party or another still in the name of their newspaper. I don't know whether the Waterbury Republican is still going, but I suspect the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle is probably still going. I mean, that's how it was, and that's how people got their news. They got it from partisan sources. And you know, we came through all of that and managed to have elections, and the country moved forward and so on. And, and you know, we, have a, we do have a poisonous political climate in Washington now. It is more polarized than I've ever seen it, but I think the extent to which cable news is a cause of that is minor, and I think it's, I think it's probably a reflection of that. Well, do you have a critique of cable news at all? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, that I would, you know, look, I'm a hard news guy. I know. I'd like to see more hard news on. Um, but I can't deny the popularity of the opinion programming, and that's how it helps to finance the, you know, the, the I mean, look, cable news right now is where news is going and where news is growing. That's Gradually, exactly what she said. She said that's where the money, that's the thing that is, is making money, and that is what is and, successful. And, and, and it is unmistakably <laughs> the case that if you're going to have uh, a news operation supported by bureaus all over the country and a string of correspondents and a large Washington bureau with a full staff of correspondents and some far-flung bureaus around the world and the ability where you don't have them to bring people in and, and all that goes with that to cover news, it takes a lot of money. And that is, and I think, and I look, I don't have access to the numbers, and I'm not sure I could interpret them if I did, but I think it is probably the case that the hard news programming at Fox revenue supports that infrastructure. The thing about the, about the opinion program, or the type that Rachel Maddow does, or Sean Hannity does, or Glenn Beck does, is that it is, apart from the rather significant salaries of the, of the stars, it is not terribly expensive to produce. And Beck, of course, is an amazing phenomenon in this regard because of, so first of all, Beck is worth talking about here because it's an astonishing phenomenon. Five o'clock in the afternoon, Eastern Time, has been throughout the history of cable news a audience black hole. <coughs> uh, it's the time, I think of the time of day in the East where people are getting home, going home, kids are being picked up. Uh, um, you know, it might be a time you'd have the radio on, but how many people are home in front of the television watching news programming? And if you are watching news programming, aren't you more likely to watch the 5 o'clock news where you can get your local sports and weather from your local channel? I'd say the answer to that is yes. So you're up against news to begin with, many places, and they're not that, the, the number of households using television, the hut number as it's called, is, is relatively low. So you got a problem at Fox. You got this five o'clock hour, you can't get a number, nobody can, but you're trying. So somebody comes along and says, No, look, there's this guy, see, he's oh, he, that's a radio host. He calls himself a rodeo clown with a radio show. <laughs> and you know, what we're going to do is we're going to hire him, see, we're going to give him a tell, we're going to give him a show at five o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you're going to use a lot of fancy graphics and stuff, too. No, 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 we're not going to do any of that. No, no. What we're going to have is you're going to have a chalkboard with stick up photographs that he's going to put on, and he's going to talk about that. Well, he's going to have great guests, right? He's going to do great. No, he's not going to have very many guests at all. Mostly it's just going to be him and the chalkboard and the stick up photos. And it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're going to get a rating with that? I mean, who would have possibly imagined? Oh, and he's going to talk about a lot of things. He's going to. There'll be a lot of discussion of the origins of the progressive movement and quite a lot of talk about Woodrow Wilson. I mean, you'd say, this is madness. <laughs> and when he first came on the air, I thought, 
this is madness. <laughs> I tuned in one day at 5 o'clock. I was sitting in my office, and he was on the air, and he was standing on the anchor desk wearing later hosen. <laughs> and I thought, this guy is not in the same line of work as I am. <laughs> but there he gives, every afternoon he delivers a you know, 40 minute long leaving time, leaving out the time for commercial disquisition on something quite serious. This is very serious program. He's talking about history and he's talking about philosophy of politics and he's talking about a lot of things. Now look, he's got a gift and he's a cheerful guy and he and he's a showman and all that, but it's a but it's an amazing phenomenon. And I think not an unhealthy one. So And how many people watch him now? Well it's I think mean, it was I haven't got a current rating number in my head, but it was for the longest time it was second only to O'Reilly. I mean, relative to, say, the ABC Nightly News. Well, the numbers are small by comparison to the ABC Nightly News. Now, I have a theory about the, the Nightly News program, and that is that they are a short uh, uh, diet of news that comes on after your local news, and that the audience is inherited. And it is, I think it is that the, in, the audience of in, it is a less engaged audience in terms of politics and government mm -hmm. than is the audience for cable. The news junkies, I think, have by and large gravitated to cable. Not all of them, and, and you know, the major broadcast nightly news programs remain very widely watched, and they are important. A lot of people see them, but I, th I have a I have a sense, given the impact that cable has had, that the the uh, audience for cable, while smaller, is more influential. And then when you spread it out across out across the day and evening, um, and remember, uh, ABC News gets a crack at the audience at six thirty for or seven, depending on which program you watch, for a few minutes, half an hour, and then Nightline gets a crack at it, and there's a morning show. Meantime, during all of that, cable news is on. People are watching. So the cumulative audience is really quite large. Um, you add it all up. And the profits, I think it, CNN even, which is lagging now, but the profits are significant. And how much of that is because of the carriage charges, would you say? Well, it's... I mean, I, the thing is, this is what she was making the point, that it is extraordinarily profitable. Well, it is profitable, but there are two income streams. One is the advertising revenue, and you can always tell when the economy is in a downturn, because that's when you see a lot of gold ads, and you can buy those products for which operators are standing by uh, from cable news ads. Um, and um, I got some damn thing once that I ordered one. That on Fox is supposed to help you to clean your automobile windows out from the inside. Didn't work with a dam. <laughs> they get a piece of that. I think that's how that works. A piece of it. But and the other stream is from the, what the cable operators have to pay for the program. But the fact that they have to pay for it um, on a per, <coughs> per subscriber basis is a sign of the success of the of the medium. Well, the medium is a success. And the tone of it in prime time on both sides of the political equation is extraordinarily partisan and harsh. Not on every program. Well, I mean, Beck even Beck Hannity, Overman. Okay, Beck. I mean, I'm talking about the ones who are perceived. I mean, you know, the, the highest rated ones, the ones that are perceived to be the sort of the, the you know, the, the flagships. I, you know, I'm, I'm not arguing it's one way or other completely in terms of the ability well, of either of any of them. All I'm saying is that. Are you, are you at all surprised to hear yourself saying it's a poisonous political atmosphere and that these cable, this cable news kind of, of hyper sort of confrontational and aggressive uh, commentary has no role in shaping it? I think it, has, it may have some role in shaping you know, people's precise thinking about it, but I'm not sure that it's a, that I, I still think it's more reflection mm -hmm. than cause, but okay. you know, who will ever know? Well, look, I want to let other people in on this conversation. So if you have a question, please. Sir, I'm uh, Rick Siders. I'm a mid-career student here at the King School. And my question is this. I'm one of the few, I mean, I guess there is a few of us conservatives at the school. And one thing I've noticed since being here is that there's two things that really upset some of the left-to-center folks uh, quicker than anything. It's mentioning Sarah Palin's name or Fox News. And why do you feel like 
like even the, the Obama White House, I know they, they had come out pretty, fairly strongly against Fox News and, and re had refused to do any um, spots with the, with the news <coughs> channel. Why do you think they feel so threatened by Fox News? Well, uh, when we talk, as we've been talking, Alex and I have been talking here about you know, MSNBC and Fox News. Um, MSNBC audience is a fraction of Fox News. It's a problem for um, for the, the administration is that Fox News is. <coughs> I mean, its its audience day by day is more than CNN and MSNBC combined, and so it's it's a factor <coughs> that they have to no pun intended that they may have to deal with, and it's and it departs from the sort of the orthodoxy of the way the broadcast networks cover the news and the way that the other cable channels look at the news. And so, you know, you have this, it's, it's success is the problem. Sarah Palin is another, is an interesting case. I think that the reaction to Sarah Palin is, is, is about 50-50 political and cultural. Uh, people on the left don't care for her politics, and a lot of people across the country who may not be so uh, alienated by her politics are sort of alienated by her, by her voice, by her her uh, uh, aggressiveness, by her and by her you know use and abuse of the English language. I mean, I, I know her a bit from seeing her at Fox and I've talked to her some both publicly and privately, and I I find her to be quite an engaging and attractive woman, and, and I think she's been on political terms a net plus for the Republican Party. Uh, not an unalloyed benefit, certainly, but a net plus. But I can see, look, I grew up in the East, went to Eastern schools, and, and when Sarah Palin says us, I heard her say on Fox recently, or not so recently, but sometime back, she was talking about the, uh, the, the uh, unfunded mandates that were uh, being um, imposed on states, and she was complaining about all of what she called this mandation. And I thought, well, that was on me. I had before, and I thought that was an interesting invention. <laughs> but I, you know, I think some educated people would listen to that and say, "This woman is a complete hayseed. Why are we paying any attention to her at all?" And then what was the word she refudiate? She coined the word refudiate, which apparently the Oxford American Dictionary has now decided is is not a bad word at all, and is going to include. <laughs> so that shows your influence that she can force a word into the English language. There are a lot of some words I like to force out, but she's she's done that. So I think you know that, that accounts for that. Well, she's. And uh, you know there are individual issues within that that I'm sure will bear on that. Hi, I'm Joel Angardio, a mid-career student. I had a question about two correspondents, Bernie Goldberg and John Stossel. So Bernie was a longtime CBS correspondent who left and then wrote this scathing book about li left liberal bias. Right. Um, and I'm wondering what you think of that. Was that was that an overreaction, or was he speaking the truth? Because you alluded to, to it. Well, I, like, I, I don't uh, recall whether I read that book at the time it came out or not. My rec recollection of what I knew about it was that it was, it was pretty rich with examples of what he was talking about, and they were reasonably compelling examples. He's not a correspondent at Fox News. He's a, I guess he's a contributor. He's probably on the payroll. But he... What, what is the distinction? I mean, a, a contributor versus a... Well, a correspondent is somebody who works as a reporter for you and is out covering news. A contributor. A contributor is somebody who comes on to comment, and maybe in a certain situation might. So does commentary. <coughs> comment. Yeah, okay. I mean, when he, when Bernie Goldberg is on, he's on there to express. He's an opinion dispenser. Okay. He's on there to express his opinions about things. And Bill O'Reilly has him on, you know, a couple of days a week, or one day a week anyway, and he comments mostly about the media, and he comments from that perspective, which you saw reflected if you read it in his book, um, and. I think he's interesting, and I think he's he's alive to the uh, way the mainstream media works because he worked in it for a long time and saw the the tendencies, which I think are there and unmistakable. And, and I wanted to ask about John Stossel because Stossel was at ABC for many years, right. and I'm wondering how did he stay on the air there because he is he's since left and he says that he's <coughs> a pariah at ABC because he was put on those libertarian programs in prime time, right. and I'm wondering. How did those programs, because that was an alternative message for sure, how did those programs <coughs> stay on? Was it because the audience actually wanted it? And was Rune Arledge obviously was supporting it? I'm, so I'm wondering what you know or think about Well, I, you know, I, when I was at ABC News while John Stossel was at ABC News, he was kind of consumer affairs, you know, watchdog kind of thing. And, uh, and, um, 
and I was in Washington and he was in New York and Charlie probably knows more about what may have gone on vis-a-vis Stossel than I do. I just don't know that much about how he got along there. But my, you know, He's pretty good on the air. He's a pretty attractive guy and he, and, uh, <coughs> he makes his points with some force and, and, um, and I, I suspect that for the things that he did, uh, there was an audience. It was, you know, it was, he was, but he wasn't in the midst of the <coughs> mainstream news product. Yes. I'm Lisa King. I'm a mid-career student as well, and I kind of have a two-part question. Um, one, I'd love to hear your opinion. <coughs> what do you think happened in the 2010 midterms? Like, where did the voters go who didn't turn out to vote that, that turned out to vote for Obama in 08? Where do you where do you think they went, or why do you think they didn't show up for the, for, for Obama and Democrats and reflecting the Democrats in 2010? And Professor Gergen a couple weeks ago, right after the midterms, made a statement in class where he said he believes that this is a dangerous time for America. Uh, with the polarization that's in place, and I was wondering if you care to comment on that as well. <laughs> well, David Gargan is a nice guy. I've always liked him. I've always had a, a difficulty with him. This is very important observation. The man looks exactly like the cat in the hat. <laughs> it's uncanny. And somebody said that to me one time, and I've never been able to look at David the same way since. And I like him very much. <laughs> He's a very nice fellow. He's had a lot of experience. He's been in almost every administration since the dawn of the Republic in some capacity or another. And I, I think that we will all know that Barack Obama has taken to heart the lessons of the midterm when David Gergen reappears at the White House. Uh, I don't think this is... I think. To outward appearances, I can see why people would think this is a dangerous time for America. I don't think the republic is in any danger of fragmenting or crumbling or falling apart. And if you think back, for example, to the year 1998, 1999, the economy was booming, the unemployment rate was low, the stock market was soaring. We were, we didn't have, except for those that had been stationed by, you know, mid, under NATO mandate around the world, we had troops practically nowhere in the life was really good, when in fact, that was really a dangerous time, because we were blithely unprepared for the attack that hit us on September 11, 2001. So, you know, we, had some, we had a very major problem that we were not re responding to. We have some major problems now. I think the chances of response to them are better. I don't think that the that the rip-roaring debates that go on about these issues in our media uh, uh, harm that situation. I think they probably heighten the chances of being done. Now, the 2010 midterm. In short, this was a reversion to the norm in the sense that the people who voted for Barack Obama in 2008 and who deserted him in 2010 were roughly speaking, the independents. The independents are the true swing vote in American elections. We can talk all we can about various ethnic demographic groups and so on, and we can work out and make all kinds of interesting propositions about how much their vote counts and so on. But if you have your base plus the independents in large numbers, you're going to win an election. And if you're a Republican or a conservative who are more numerous in America according to their own self-designation, than liberals, and you have the independents, you're going to win big. And according to polling that Gallup has been doing over the past year or so, the number of people who self-identify as liberals in America is about 20 percent. The number who self-identify as conservatives is about 40 percent. This is a center-right country. There was a poll taken by a Republican pollster named David Winston on Election Day 2008 of a thousand actual voters, <coughs> and given the disrepute into which the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, exit polling has fallen. It was a particularly <coughs> useful poll. Winston, while he's a Republican, did not take this for this poll for a partisan client. He took it for a private client. It wasn't released at the time. He shared it with some journalists later on. <coughs> Among the questions asked is, and remember, this was a thousand you know, scientifically chosen Samples, a thousand, thousands of good-sized samples. 
actual voters. This is the electorate that put Barack Obama in office. Where do you place yourself on a scale of one to nine, one being farther left, nine being farther right? It averaged out to 5.88. <coughs> uh, that's center-right. Uh, you will find in the polls that Gallup has taken and some others have taken <coughs> on the liberal, conservative, moderate, that the, the plurality fluctuates between the moderate and the conservative. But liberal ranks around 20 percent. Uh, that's the way it, it comes out. So when Barack Obama was elected, he was elected, in my view, on the strength of <coughs> one issue, the economic emergency and the collapse of the banking system. Many people don't recall this. I'm sure most of you are aware of this. But on September 15, 2008, when the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy hit and the, and the bank collapse nearly happened, the old banking system frankly went John McCain was ahead in the polls. When you think of the advantages that Barack Obama had in this election, that in itself is surprising. Uh, McCain was... I mean, he got a big boost within his own base from Sarah Palin and from some other voters. And he had a good convention and he kind of snuffed out the, the bump that Obama got from his. But Obama, <coughs> we had, even though the, the war in Iraq had turned in, in favor of the, of the U.S., uh, it was, the country was weary of the war. I would say that the 2006 election, I've always thought of that as the Iraq midterm. The country was war-weary, they were Bush-weary, the people were you know, weary of all the strife and trouble that had occurred. The economy had been, in, had been in recession, we now know, for more than a year, started in 2007. And the outlook, people were bleak about the economy before the banking, and their attitude turned before the banking meltdown hit. I don't think Ronald Reagan could have been elected in the middle of all that. That's the issue that elected Barack Obama, unmistakably. And he, when he, he also had run, at least in terms of the music, if not the words, and some of the words as well, as a kind of a centrist Democrat. Now, if you looked at it closely, you could see by his voting record and various <coughs> positions he'd taken over the years, he really wasn't centrist, he was pretty liberal. But the country was ready for change. The economy was bad. My theory of politics, and I didn't used to say this very loud when I was doing an hour-long political show every night, is that campaigns and candidates are not usually or normally not controlling in presidential or other national or nationalized elections. The condition in the country, real or perceived, is the key factor. Now, campaigns and candidates can magnify margins, they can make a race closer, but the decisive factor is almost always the condition in the country. <coughs> and in congressional elections, many congressional elections aren't nationalized, they're about, you know, 500 and, or, you know, approximately 500 local races. Um, this year they, it was nationalized. This was a national election. And what happened in the Obama case, I think, was, and I'll never forget this, right after the election, David Plouffe, done a very skillful job of managing what was a very well-executed campaign for this remarkably charming and engaging candidate, Barack Obama. David Plouffe said, what this election shows is that we're no longer a center-right country, we are now a center-left country. That, I would submit, was a miscalculation. And it led to a miscalculation about the mandate that had been conferred by the electorate. <coughs> Obama and company took this as a mandate to take the country in a strikingly new direction, which he proceeded to do. He, the first thing he did then, of course, was to try to deal with the economy by means of a stimulus package that is now, I guess its cost is now estimated at something on the order of $862 billion. The number at the time was 787 It was a remarkable grab bag of different elements, some of which could arguably be said to be 
be stimulating to the economy in some enduring way, and many of which were stimulating to the economy only in the sense, as John Maynard Keynes famously once said, that you could pay people to dig holes and, and fill them back up again because you're putting money in your hands, which they will spend, and presto, you have stimulus. Um, that's a much of what Keynes, many of Keynes's insights are enduring, and I think hold to this day. Um, and I'm not sure he was advocating for that as an idea of stimulus, but it was a concept of stimulus that, that, that um, the Democrats on Capitol Hill seemed to embrace. And they had a wish list that had been accumulating for many. It had been a long time to call since the Democrats had had significant margins in the House and Senate and the White House. They'd had the House and Senate for a while when Bush was still president, but he could, he could block it with a veto. So they went on a spending binge. We know that that didn't end the recession. And how do we know that? We know that because the recession, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the arbiter of such things, is, is, has said that the recession ended in June 2007. The economy began to grow again. Well, the stimulus money hadn't really gotten out the door then, so it didn't, technically it didn't end the recession. The other thing that was happening, of course, at the time was the Federal Reserve was, was pumping liquidity into the economy in every way it could see, and although it's recently shown that it has other uh, means at its disposal and is prepared to use them. And then the President, having gotten this bill passed, well, written largely in con by Congress, and it had a rather notorious reputation by the time it passed. There were so many projects in it that seemed so wasteful and so inappropriate to the idea of stimulating the national economy that it, it it got a lot of bad press, and, and, it, and it passed under a cloud. He then turned his attention for 15 months to a separate issue, the health care reform bill. Now, if you ask people in polls whether they want health care reform, they will say yes, in some cases, by significant majorities. But let me take you back to that poll of Election Day 2008. That same sample was asked what was their top issue? It was a list of about 20 issues. It was pretty comprehensive. Uh, you won't be surprised to learn that 40%, by far the largest number, said economy. Healthcare reform, 5%. The problem with healthcare reform as an issue for the Obama administration is that while people would say they were for it, it was nobody's priority. And this is where he went for 15 years. So people thought, I think, that it was the wrong thing. And when they saw its outlines and its contours, they thought it was the wrong, wrong thing. And you put that together with the fact that the public was alarmed by the, by the TARP. Uh, there were, uh, people were alarmed about Bush's spending, to begin with, particularly conservatives, and some moderates who were fiscally concerned. TARP, I think, has arguably been a success. It was a bad idea whose time, alas, had come. And it's worked out about as well as could be expected. It probably did save the banking system. It's certainly arguable that it did. But it was unpopular. And it was into this atmosphere that came the stimulus and then the health care reform bill, a whole new entitlement. Um, the election results, given the nature of the American electorate, about, are about what you'd expect. I think the country remains center-right, and the you could, a president could be pretty darn liberal uh, and succeed in this country with the electorate on one condition, and that is that the circumstances and the results are superb. You'd have to have, you don't want, you, you got to take the war in Afghanistan off the table. You don't want to have that. You would have to have the economy making a striking V-shaped recovery with unemployment sinking rapidly and the stock market raging ahead, recovering all that it had lost and more. You would have needed the most remarkable set of positive conditions to overcome the burdens that I think that the Obama team really put on themselves. But you didn't have that. And they were going to lose seats probably anyway. But losing them in this number was a function of, of uh, taking the country farther to the left than the country wanted to go. <coughs> Think of Reagan, 1982. People forget this. That was a very nasty recession, 1981, 82. 
the unemployment rate went higher than it ever has in this one. It got up to almost 12 percent. There was, I'll never forget covering hearings on Capitol Hill, and I know Charlie remembers this too, the, the howls of pain from the Rust Belt members because of the high unemployment out there were deafening. I mean, it was really a dark time. And interest rates were over the moon because this had been a kind of a Fed-induced recession. And yet the Republican Party under Reagan lost, I think, 25 or 26 seats in the House and not a single Senate seat in that election. So that gives you a basis for comparison of what's happened here. And the thing that's important to remember about this election was that this was almost entirely a rebuke of the Democratic Party and its president. Because the public has not, the Republican Party has not worked its way back into the public's favor. It was in disfavor in 06, disfavor again in 08. Uh, and, and the only thing the Republican Party did to earn this was the members in Congress voted almost unanimously to, to, against the stimulus program and against health care reform. That is what qualified them to receive what I consider to be the biggest political gift of the 2008 election, which was the decision of the Tea Party movement not to go third party. If the Tea Party movement had gone third party, and it well could have, it looked like to me it might, it looked exactly like the kind of, <coughs> of, of, a, of a movement that would go in that direction. We would have had a very different picture on election. We would have had third party candidates running races all over the country, siphoning away the protest vote from the Republicans, Democrats would have done way better. But given your your analysis, before we came out here, we were talking, and uh, you said that you thought the Republicans had a strong field for presidential nominations. Sure. And given what your sense of what the country is, how do you size up the political prospects for Barack Obama in 2012? And how do you s handicap? You know, who do you think are the real? strongest candidates that the Republicans could feel? Well, let's talk about Obama first. I think he can make a recovery, and I don't think it would be all that unlikely that he would. Remember this about the economy, and this is critically important. The tendency of market economies in a recession is to recover. The people who work in them get up every day and go to work trying to figure out a way to make their business grow again. That's what they do. And in this country, they have a lot of experience at it. People in this country are inventive, they're resourceful, they're motivated, and, and that's what drives this extraordinary economy. And it, think of the headwinds it's ran through in the decade of the, the first decade of this, of this century. Aftermath of 9-11, Katrina, kept on growing. Now look, I acknowledge it was a housing bubble in the middle of that, which I think was um, a big part of the growth it was bringing the deficit actually went down in the middle of three years of the Bush administration because of the tax receipts were up that owed a lot to the to the capital gains that were being made and so on but an economic recovery <coughs> much stronger than what we're seeing now is definitely a possibility and you got the Federal Reserve is out there pumping is still pumping liquidity to the extent it possibly can into the economy it's pushing against the string a little bit because the infusion of, of, of money through the banking system by the Fed has coincided with a regulatory crackdown that has meant that even when there was demand for, for capital uh, from the banks, that it was the uh, loan requirements and the other regulatory red tape that are associated with that have been tightened to the point where it was hard to get money anyway. So, so the credit crunch remained for significant sectors of the economy, especially small business. Now, that may subside. Um, and if that does, if the economy on its own volition, and you know, there's a phenomenon economists refer to as pent-up demand. And that is, you get to the point where the washing machine can't be fixed anymore. It's just shot, and you've got to find one way or another, get it together and buy a new one, <coughs> or a new car, or another big-ticket item. Well, over a period of time, this is going to happen to a lot of people. And the purchases of these items are the kind of consumer-led uh, uh, activity that drives recovery. And you know, it's probably happening now. The economy looks like it may be beginning to pick up a little bit. Now, look, I think there are headwinds, and I think the Obama administration's economic policies have not been well designed to foster recovery, but the economy could well recover anyway. And if it does, that will change the atmosphere markedly for 2012. The, I don't think the country has decided it doesn't like Barack Obama. He remains, you look at his personal popularity ratings, they're quite high. 
he's a remarkably engaging and likable man. I mean, he's not a hateable guy in any way. And, you know, he, 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 you know, he I, people who don't like him don't like him. That's always going to be true of any president. You're going to have a block of the country, 30%, give or take, maybe more, who don't like you. But, you know, the rest of the people, the people <coughs> who decide things, and they haven't given up on Barack Obama and on the idea that he represents it. And if he were to work with the Republicans on some issues, and there's some, say, on deficit reduction, and they got serious about that, my God, the, the independents would flock to his banner. They're very concerned about these issues. So I think, you know, he's, you know, people are talking about, oh, he's going to be a one-term president. Well, maybe he will, but I remember what happened with Bill Clinton. Uh, look, I don't think it would be as easy for, Bill, for Barack Obama to make a turn to the center as it was for Bill Clinton. Clinton had done it before. It happened to him in Arkansas when he when he got turned out of office at one point, and and because he and, and Hillary was being Hillary Rodham and that didn't people in Arkansas didn't like that and he was being he was he had moved to the left in a way that the people of that southern state were not fond of, and they turned him out. What did he do? Well, he he went he got he hired Dick Morris, and the next thing you know, he was moving to the center, got himself back in office, and basically governed from the center rest of his term, and he did that as president. So he'd been there before. It was a, you know, he was quite nimble about it. Um, Obama deserves a little time, by the way. He's not shown many signs of making movement yet, but as the issues come up one by one, watch. Not, to what he, not so much what he says, but what he does. Uh, if he does that, that'll help him. So he could make an easy recovery, and the Republican nomination may end up not being worth nearly as much to the, this extraordinarily large field as it seems today. Now, why do I think it's a strong field? I think there are a number of attractive and well-qualified people who, you know, nobody seems like a plausible president two years out who's, who's not, particularly somebody who's not currently holding a national office. They, you know, senators always seem like more plausible presidents, although it's, Obama was the first senator in a long time to get elected from, from, the, from, the, from that office. But you look at, a, look, at a, look at a vanilla candidate like Tim Pawlenty, attractive <coughs> guy, are of competence, governed effectively in what has been a largely blue state. Um, I think he's a very competent candidate. Probably the best political slash policy mind in the whole field belongs to Haley Barber. Um, now, you know, he's got some liabilities, he's not young, he's heavy, he's got this heavy, heavy drawl uh, that people may decide is too much for them, you know, culturally, I don't know. I think uh, there's a lot of argument about whether Sarah Palin will run. I think that she could run, but I don't think she's decided to yet. And I think all other things being equal, she probably won't. Um, I think she would be a tough candidate. She might get the nomination. Her negatives are so high that I think it would be hard for her to get elected. Um, and I think she's a net plus for the party. She anim animates the base in a way that that um, that really no one else does. When you think about 2004 and how George W. Bush was reelected in a very tight race where conditions in the country were not ideal for reelection; they weren't bad. Um, and Karl Rove and the organization found voters in numbers no one imagined possible in places no one imagined people were. Uh, in parts of Ohio where you know, they racked up pluralities and majorities that people didn't, the Democrats who did a wonderful job in 2004 of turning out the vote, and they couldn't, but when their day was done, there's a wonderful article by Matt By in the New York Times Magazine about this, about the Democrats' voter turnout effort in the pivotal state of Ohio. Bush ended up winning that state by 116,000 votes, and, and people didn't, the Democrats didn't know that where these voters were coming from. And and um, they were, the base was enormously energized. A lot of it was Christian conservatives who turned out for Bush, who worked for Bush, who got people to the polls for Bush. John McCain didn't have that advantage. Sarah Palin brought it, which is why they were leading on September 15th. Uh, so she brings a lot. And having her in the fold and working for your side, if you're a conservative or a Republican, is very important. Whether she could be successful as a nominee, I don't know. I look, I mean, look, Mitt Romney is somebody I think a lot of people would be comfortable with as president. I think he may have a fatal uh, 
problem, and that is the unmistakable conceptual similarities between the uh, health care program that, that, that was adopted under him in Massachusetts and the Obamacare program. They just, you know, and his explanation of why they're different really doesn't wash. And I know Mitt Romney a little bit. I very much like him. I think he's been he's an admirable human being. People I know who have worked for him and with him say he's a man of enormous integrity and great decency. Um, he can't switch, though, on health care reform now because he's switched on too many other issues. It's okay to switch on things. People change their minds. But you can't be a you know endless history of I was for it before I was against it. I mean, that, that, that ultimately, that's fatal in a and a sort of conservative base election, which is what the primary season would be like for the Republican. Given that it's impossible to predict, who do you think will be the Republican nominee? I've got to tell you, I, it is impossible to predict. I don't like to do predictions anyway, and so I wouldn't even try. I think it's way too early to tell. Maybe the <coughs> is huge. We're just beginning to see the, the, the landscape form a little bit afterwards, and I, you know, I don't... Well, we're all, we're we're beyond our time. Then uh, somebody gets a question. Thank you, Bruce.